Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. So today I thought I'd do something a little bit different and that is to record a solo episode which I haven't done for a while. And in this, I wanted to reflect a bit on my own recovery journey as I move further and further down this healed road and also to use this to reflect on different themes I see in the eating disorder therapy room, particularly focusing more on understanding your past, working through it and processing difficult events or traumas and ultimately moving on from these. And I hope that through this, you will gain a greater psychological understanding of eating disorders. Obviously, this is skewed by my experiences, by the things that I've been through and my own experiences with clients. And this isn't going to be relevant for everyone. I fully believe that you are the expert on you. And I think you can always take what's helpful, reject what isn't helpful and really integrate that into your own recovery process. Okay, so, you know, there is no one size fits all. But what I do hope is that this episode will enable you to think about your journey and to understand yourself better. So by the time you guys hear this, I'm hopefully going to be in Skopelos, Mamma Mia Island with my three children, having an amazing time with work being a zillion miles away. So I'm really excited about this as I haven't been out of the UK since a couple of years before the pandemic hit. So it's a major novelty. And yeah, do cross all your fingers and toes for me, as hopefully we're not sitting in an airport somewhere waiting to board a flight. Hopefully we'll be on the beach by the time you hear this. So in understanding why someone develops an eating disorder, we need to go back to the early relationships, environment and key influential life experiences. So it's remembering an eating disorder is a symptom of underlying distress. So people will experience life and will respond in different ways. So for some people, it may come out later through depression or anxiety or use of substances or overwork. Or maybe their mental health will be more intact because they've experienced some helpful and protective factors on their journey. I guess the thing I want to say here is it's so individual and you can have several siblings who from the outside appear to be going through a similar experience, but they will each experience it differently due to their own genetics, also due to the relationships they have, due to their their position in the family, due to their support network of friends. So it can be really quite variable really in terms of how people experience things differently. And I guess the important thing here is your experience is really valid. So even if it's different from someone else's, what you went through, the feelings that you have, those are valid and those need to be listened to. That's really important. Now, my personal view with all of this is that the deeper work, and I'm saying this with a caveat when you're ready to do this, the deeper psychological work, it is a really valuable and important part of recovery. Now, you can just focus on symptoms. So with an eating disorder, maybe breaking out of cycles of restriction, managing binge eating, developing self-caring strategies, maybe challenging automatic thoughts, etc. However, 
although this work is really an essential component, if you don't work on the deeper things, in my opinion, you're likely to be left in partial recovery for the long term. Or what you could do as well is you might just end up transferring your coping mechanism onto something else. So it might transfer onto overwork or fitness or alcohol or substance use, to name a few. And I can think, particularly perhaps in the eating disorder space, sometimes people will transfer their um, issues perhaps onto sort of fitness and obtaining a certain aesthetic, um, a certain body composition. And that becomes, not that there's anything wrong in itself with that, but I'm talking about when it becomes the thing that you are doing to help you feel in control, to help you cope with life, to maybe kind of numb your emotions as your core form of self-esteem. That's when it can be more problematic. It's not so much the actual behaviour itself, it's more the meaning behind it. But yeah, it's not so uncommon in the eating disorder recovery space that people sometimes get massively into fitness, but maybe um, in a slightly unhelpful way, and that can become an obsession. But I guess my point is here that what's really important is if we do the deeper work in our recovery, we are much more likely to have a full healing experience. So we fully sort of transfer into being our much more authentic selves, finding our voice, being, um, you know, having healthy relationships, the kind of wider picture of mental health, rather than getting to that partially recovered place where we are managing our symptoms a bit better, but ultimately we are still really struggling with our mental well-being. And of course, ultimately, we all want that full recovery, don't we? Um, You know, partial recovery in a way sometimes is a very painful place to be because of you've almost got the worst of both worlds. You're not getting the, and I'm saying this within kind of air quotes, (laughs) benefits of an eating disorder because, you know, it's very questionable, isn't it? You know, how beneficial an eating disorder is. But I'm saying that as a coping strategy, not really that they're benefits. But you can kind of be stuck in that no man's land between feeling that you haven't got the eating disorder as a coping strategy anymore, but still having loads of food, food rules, body image kind of criteria that you have to fulfill. And then that can be a really, really difficult place because from the outside, everyone can presume that you are fully recovered when in fact you are far from it and actually you are struggling a lot day by day. Um, Just to say as well, I think going back as well to the other thing about sometimes when eating disorder transfer into the fitness space in terms of like controlling your body in that way, that can be quite confusing because of you might get a lot of external validation from everybody about that when you are still struggling as you were with the previous eating disorder symptoms. So it's all a bit of a minefield really, but I guess the main thing to really emphasise is that we want to be going for full authentic recovery, not partial recovery ideally. So I'm going to talk a bit about how I've worked through my own journey. Everyone's experience is unique. So I encourage you to reflect on your personal experiences and consider how you process your past. So I grew up on a farm with three younger sisters. And in many ways, this sounds very idyllic. And in many ways, it was a really wonderful experience. Living in the countryside, being in nature, having a lot of space to run around, a close extended family. And, you know, it was all, all these things were really, really great. And I do appreciate many, many different elements from this. And in many respects as well, I had immense privilege. So I want to just really emphasize that because of, you know, my experiences, you know, I did have some trauma in my early life, but as well, there were many, many things that were protective and positive in my life as well. 
Now, my dad was and is a farmer. My dad had taken on the farm. This farm had been in the family for generations and he had felt a lot of pressure and expectation to take this on. He was the only boy and um, his sisters weren't interested at all. And he hadn't really wanted to go into farming, but it felt it was very much his duty. And he didn't really have much of a choice. And I think my family, sort of farming family, a lot of kind of Victorian values there, a lot about kind of duty and loyalty. And, you know, my dad really felt he didn't have a choice. He kind of had to do his duty and what was expected of him. And sadly, I think he sort of went into that role through a lot of bullying, over control, and there were also emotional and physical abuse happened in his life. And he never had the chance to have therapy or to kind of really get out of his environment to reflect and have insight and to be fully aware, I guess, and come to terms with what happened. He's very much kind of lived his life in the kind of vacuum of the farm, really, with those limited people and limited experiences. And again, you know, not all bad by any means, but I guess he didn't go into that role through choice and free will. So there was a lot of difficult emotions that came with that and a lot of baggage he was carrying with that. So when someone is in pain and they haven't dealt with their childhood trauma, they're going to be tricky to be around. And, you know, my dad was someone who was carrying a lot of trauma, a lot of pain. And although I know that he loved all of us and he had really good intentions in many ways, he struggled. He had struggled through his life. And, um, you know, that has had an impact, I guess, on how he would interact with us. And, you know, was struggling with the way he managed his feelings and in terms of how he related to us. You know, after being bullied and criticised a lot himself, um, he would repeat that, you know, in his relationships with with his children and people around him um, because it's kind of what he knew. He hadn't really experienced that sort of good enough support, encouraging place. Now, in contrast, um, actually, I don't really want to say in contrast because I think, I don't believe in life that anything is black and white. <laughs> really, there there's always nuance in this. But I guess growing up, I've experienced my mum as an incredibly loving, present person. She married young, never really had much chance to find her own voice. Very much kind of back in the day, really, where um, she sort of took the route that was expected of her to kind of get married, have children, to be the homemaker. And again, not there's anything wrong with that at all. Uh, I think when someone steps into that fully with awareness and conscious choice, that's amazing. But if you're kind of going into it where you haven't really got to know yourself, where you haven't really found your own voice, where you don't know where your own strengths are, your interests are, where you're not able to set your own boundaries, you know, much more tricky. So my mum though, I'm wholly grateful for the fact that she never ever dieted. She had a healthy relationship with food. She cooked us regular meals and she had a reasonably good body image. And I'm super grateful for that because I think what a gift because I've worked with so many clients who haven't had that. You know, they've had a mum maybe who's really struggled with body image, who's gone to Weight Watchers all through their childhood and then has taken them to Weight Watchers through their teenage years with the best will in the world as well because of course we live in this toxic diet culture diet culture world and I think mothers and you know possibly fathers too but definitely historically perhaps more mothers have thought they were doing the right thing by taking their child along because there's so much fear mongering around 
weight gain and the fear of becoming overweight, etc., etc. So, you know, I think with the best will in the world, people have often done that with great intentions. So again, this isn't like a parent bashing episode at all, because I think on the whole, parents do the best they can at the time with the knowledge they have. But I just want to acknowledge that if you're listening to this and you haven't perhaps had, if you've had all those messages around dieting and fat phobia and focus on body image, comments about your body from very young, of course that's going to impact your body image. Of course that's going to have impacted your relationship with food. And if it's happened from when you were a young age, you know, it's going to be hugely, hugely, hugely impactful on, you know, the rest of your life and your relationship with food, you know, until you work through that and develop a different relationship. So I just really want to acknowledge that. Something else that I was very, very fortunate about, fortunate with, is my mum always cooked just regular meals. And that maybe sounds like a kind of basic thing that you would expect um, a parent to do. But I think, again, that doesn't always happen because of people are busy, people are trying to juggle work, perhaps caring for elderly relatives, all kinds of other things. And, you know, cooking regular meals isn't something that always can happen. Maybe for financial reasons, social reasons, there can be lots of barriers for that. I was really lucky like my mum cooked me really nice regular meals and we had no forbidden foods in the house so sorry when I say we have no forbidden foods in the house I mean we didn't have good or bad foods my mum introduced us to all foods in a very food neutral way without calling it that (laughs) but you know we are at peace with all manner of foods there was no kind of guilt or negative associations around particular foods so I was really really lucky with that And I am hugely grateful because I'm aware that's a massive protective factor that's helped me and heal my relationship with food. And I truly acknowledge that is not true for everybody. So scrolling down on my list here with my little bullet points. So although my mum had a good relationship with food, she didn't actually feel good enough in her self-worth. She was and is an absolute super carer of everybody else. She would look after everyone else, not herself. She didn't really have much of her own voice and my dad tended to dominate and she would very much kind of her role was keeping the peace and smoothing things over and again I think again so back in the day this wasn't such an unusual dynamic of this generation and she was kind of doing what she knew best she'd never really lived independently from home before she got married she hadn't had chance to find her feet to find herself self-care and having one's own voice didn't used to be kind of normal things which are thankfully just part of good mental well-being today my mum was very conditioned really to be the super carer of everybody else and that's how she sort of derived her worth but um you know she would not really put herself first she didn't really have any boundaries she would say yes to everything and consequently she was often like really exhausted and tired and quite burnt out from just taking on the world So, you know, understandably, that's going to have a huge impact on her well-being. So from this kind of backdrop of things that were going on with my mum and dad, I had my own self-esteem issues from early on. I did face quite a lot of criticism from my dad, not feeling good enough for him. And, you know, I have huge compassion for him now, as I I do understand that he was just communicating in the way that was familiar and known to him. Okay, it doesn't mean that it was okay but he was just kind of repeating history. He hadn't stepped back and had that sort of reflection and awareness to notice to do things differently. And I, as a child and teenager, was just so desperate to please my dad. I so wanted his approval, but it was almost an impossible feat because I think in a way as well, the more I tried to please him, 
the less he respected me. And it was this just sort of toxic cycle where he would probably be more bullying and then I would try to please more and just just really, really unhelpful cycle. So nothing was ever good enough. And I was on this kind of relentless treadmill, really, and self-imposed in many, to, to, my, to many extents, trying to do that, um, trying to win his approval. And it took me well into my 20s to actually realize that this approval wasn't coming. And that was a hard, hard pill to swallow, really, because I think I always had this fantasy that if I got his approval, if he maybe could apologize for the things that had gone wrong, if we could kind of have this great discussion, he could like really say all the things I'd always wanted him to say. He could praise and support and validate me and everything would be great and we'd walk off into the sunset and have this great relationship with him. But I came to terms with the fact that in, in my early 20s that that wasn't going to happen. Um, and that was very, very, very hard at the time to come to terms with because of I think my expectation was I'm not going to feel good enough until I get this approval. And then to suddenly realize I actually am not going to get this approval probably ever was a massive grieving process. So I found that really, really, really hard. And, um, you know, there's a lot of difficult emotions I had to experience in terms of processing my pain around that in terms of coming to terms with the relationship that I wasn't going to be able to have with my dad. And I'm saying this again with compassion for my dad because of he was doing the best he could at the time. You know, he just wasn't able to give me the emotional support and validation that I needed. And probably I wasn't able to communicate with him in the way that he needed. It wasn't a good match and it was never going to happen. But coming to terms with that was a helpful part of the journey. So when I came to begin to accept this, and I think this was this was not an overnight process, I want to really let that be known, it was also quite liberating to realize that I didn't have to wait anymore for this approval that was never coming because of like, I had put my self-worth almost on hold until I was getting that approval. But when I finally came to accept that wasn't gonna come, and in a way that was nothing to do with me, that was a lot to do with my dad's journey it was freeing. It was truly freeing. So in relation to my mum, I saw her putting others first, not listening much to her own needs, people pleasing outside the family, perhaps before listening to the needs of family members. And again, doing the best she could could by passing on this powerful message. But it was almost like saying, like, we need to please the world. You don't listen to your own voice. Make sure everyone else is okay. Don't upset anyone. Bury your own feelings. Keep the harmony. And again, this was her survival strategy. She, again, had experienced a lot of conditional love and it was very hard for her to be herself. And she was quite conflict avoidant, found it very hard to set boundaries or to disappoint others. So she's very conditioned really to, you know, just try and please the world, give everything to everyone's demands and in a way that was her way of surviving but I guess it meant for us in the family sometimes you know it meant that kind of other people if they're being very demanding outside the family they would kind of come before um, members of the family and it meant it was quite hard to get your own kind of needs and your own voice to be heard um, so yeah so that was interesting so my mum was surviving though you know doing the best she can and, but you can see from the backdrop of my life, um, there were seeds planted that could have made me vulnerable to, to mental health issues later on. So, and this is no one's fault because of, you know, I'm a mother, I have three children, 
I'm sure I have done things that are going to make my children vulnerable with their mental health. I mean, I really hope I do try and do the best I can, but I really put my hands up and acknowledge I am imperfect. My parents were kind and loving people. They were doing the best they could. And, you know, parenting is a hard job. And parenting isn't in isolation, is it? Like we can have great intentions to do an amazing parenting job, but life intervenes. You know, people have redundancies or the bereavements or, you know, their losses or financial issues. Life, you know, intervenes and it makes it challenging. So I want to just truly acknowledge that. So through my childhood, I was always very fortunate to have very good friends. And that's been a really protective factor for me over the years. And also having close relationships with my siblings and some members of my wider family. So again, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, I think having, even if we don't always have close relationships with our parents, if we've got close relationships with other people in our lives and we feel validated and supported and loved by other people in our lives, that is massively protective and, you know, need to really celebrate that. So as a teenager, my sort of core issues were having low self-worth, not really expressing my feelings openly, and being quite passive in my relationships and very pleasing. So of course, this made it hard to get my own needs met. It made it hard to pursue the things I was interested in and to have confidence in my own path. But I was very fortunate not to have major food or body image issues early on. I remember I didn't really like my appearance and I could be quite critical of my appearance and I would compare myself to others, but it wasn't so much in a kind of weight and shape focused way. So that was quite interesting. But pre-developing an eating disorder at the age of 17 years old, I would have described myself as quite body neutral. You know, my body was just something I didn't really think about. It was like a vehicle to get around in the world. I didn't give it a lot of thought. And again, I think I'm quite grateful for that because of Partly, I think that was being brought up on the farm in a more sheltered environment. So perhaps I was a bit less exposed to some of the body image triggers. And also, of course, this was pre-social media. So it was easier to be a bit protected as well. So when I was 17 years old, I developed bulimia. So this kind of came off the back of a very strict diet and also going through a very painful relationship breakup, my first love, you know, and anyone listening to this who was madly in love with her first love and then devastated by the breakup will know what I'm going on about here because I think I know for me I definitely threw myself into that relationship 200% and then when it didn't work out it was incredibly incredibly painful quite devastating really but also this was then coupled with lots of different difficult emotions that were going on about my future like finishing sixth form really wanting to go to university but knowing that my dad wanted me to work on the farm and take on the family business and I really didn't want to do that but I was in so much conflict about it because I'd been raised as the pleasing good girl who did as she was told wanted her dad's approval and I desperately wanted that approval as well but on the other hand my own voice inside had become louder and I knew in my heart that I needed to break away to do something for myself But the conflict and inevitable disapproval that would happen if I did break away um, just felt really unbearable. So I felt so conflicted because I felt I couldn't really win. I was going to feel guilty and as though I disappointed everyone if I followed my own voice. But I knew I was going to just feel so flat and low in mood if I didn't listen to my own voice. But I just felt I cannot win. I cannot win. And 
the eating disorder was definitely a coping strategy through this not a kind of conscious decision but the restriction and binging and purging mirrored my own inner conflict and splitting of my feelings around this stage of this life around the stage of my life and I hadn't really got any healthy way of expressing how I felt and I didn't even feel as though I had permission to have my own feelings. Um, I felt wrong for whatever I was feeling. I felt I didn't have permission. I felt a lot of shame. I felt very, very, very low in my self-worth. And it was not a good time. And this was a time as well where therapy was just not so much commonplace. So it wasn't even a thought really to go and speak to a therapist. Um, you know, I think therapy was starting to come much more on the scene, but certainly not in the way that it is today. Now, I think it's quite a common theme for people with eating disorders where you have often lost touch with yourself, but you might not even realize that you've lost touch with yourself, with your body, with your inner voice. And maybe you've never had that deep connection with yourself. You know, I think sometimes we can be conditioned from so young to be a certain way, to be, and we get like external validation for our grades or other things that we do in our lives. And it's hard to know, like, who am I? Who am I really if I kind of strip those things away? So yeah, I think definitely not uncommon in eating disorders. So you might feel that you have no permission to think or feel, particularly if it's different from those around you and people who you love and care about. And you might feel really wrong or ashamed for having your feelings. So if you're resonating with any of this, I would really encourage you to reflect on your journey, you know, to think a bit. What were the family dynamics like when you were growing up? What were things like in the family around dieting and body image? Were there any sort of major events or traumas in the family? Did you experience bullying or bereavement or loss? You know, just starting to really explore the things that happened as you were growing up. And I think the important thing is here is your experience is really valid. You know, even if people around you experienced it in a very different way, your feelings are your feelings. And if something made you feel a certain way, that is your truth. And you know, you are the expert on you. So I'd really encourage you to be able to start to give yourself permission to have all your feelings. Now I would say again, if this all feels a bit overwhelming and you feel like you almost don't want to open this box of feelings because it just feels too much, what you might want to do is do that within the safety of therapy, in a safe therapeutic space where you you know, feel safe and grounded to be able to talk about some of these things without them being too overwhelming. I think, um, you know, there's definitely something about timing. There's definitely something about feeling safe to be able to do that. So that's just a thought. Now, people are often a bit resistant about exploring the past and talking about the past. I think sometimes they're worried that they're going to end up in this place where they're like dwelling on negative things and like kind of ruminating, stewing in their own juices and getting in a really, really like down place. But it's not really about dwelling on things. You know, the aim of exploring your past is not to stay in that place forever. It's about processing it, naming it, exploring it, having insight, reflecting, and then moving on. But you might have to do that kind of insight, reflection, experiencing, processing many times before you are able to move on. It's not just like you do it once and then you're clear. Um, but what it does is it gives you that insight and understanding of your story. It's a bit like putting the cards on the table. And um, yeah, you, and again, you might need therapy to support you in that process if it feels a bit scary to do that by yourself. Now, it's very interesting as for me, 
the underlying emotional stuff was always quite clear. Like I kind of knew what was going on with all this kind of conflict that I was experiencing, even though I had no effective way of dealing with it. Like my emotions were just all over the place. My emotional regulation was not in a good way. And I almost like I kind of understood theoretically what was going on, but I had no means of coping with that at all. Now, interestingly, I've noticed that in therapy, that being in touch with the underlying emotions is not the case for all people. Now, I think this is my blessing and my curse. I think I am a very emotional person, which has its benefits because I am quite in touch with my emotions. I can express my emotions quite easily. I can empathize with people quite well. I have a lot of compassion for people. I feel like in some ways it's my superpower but in other ways, it's not so much because I think particularly in the past, I'd often be really overwhelmed by my emotions and not be able to deal with them effectively. And I could make quite impulsive and not the most helpful decisions because I would be overly ruled by my emotions and not able to kind of tap into my more wise, perhaps rational self. And I think, you know, we do need a balance. But I've noticed for many people in therapy that they are very preoccupied, understandably, with restriction, binging, purging, body image, overexercise, and it's almost like the thoughts around all of those things are consuming and overwhelming, that the core pain is buried. And of course, in a way, that's quite understandable because of, you know, an eating disorder is a coping strategy. So by focusing on all those other things, maybe it's protective and stopping you having to deal with some really difficult core pain, because although it's not easy dealing with ED symptoms, sometimes they can be known and safer and easier to deal with almost than dealing with what might be underneath that, which might feel much more scary. So it often feels all about the food, and it kind of is about the food, but actually you know, when we peel back the layers of the onion, there's usually quite a lot of emotional stuff going on there underneath. So that's why in eating disorder treatment as well, that there's a balance that is needed sometimes in doing the deep work and working on symptoms. Because if you are in such an unstable place physiologically because of restriction, starving, binging, over-exercising, etc., it's very hard to do the emotional work because of you are just not physically in a good place to do it. You know, you're mentally challenged, you're physically challenged, you can't concentrate, you can't really focus and have insight. So sometimes as well, it is important to do some of that symptom work to get you in a more stable place before you can do the psychological work. But again, it's a bit of a chicken and egg, you know, what comes first. So I'm going to talk a bit more now about how I healed from bulimia and broke free from the eating disorder and moving on, you know, how I got to the place that I am in today, which is an ongoing journey. So a really important part of healing is about processing, feeling and allowing all the different emotions that we might be experiencing. So if you're trying to deal with stuff from your past, you might have really conflicting emotions about different things. You know, as a human being, you can simultaneously have love, respect, affection, warmth, you know, lots of like, what would, you know, kind of like more positive emotions, not again, that I like to call them really positive or negative emotions, because every emotion has a function. But you can have lots of kind of like those more loving emotions towards people that your caregivers or people, you know, that caused you pain in your life 
and you can also feel perhaps angry or upset or let down. So what's a really helpful thing is I know for me, I did a lot of talking about things and, um, you know, obviously it wouldn't have been helpful for me to be stuck in this kind of talking place endlessly going round and round and ruminating, but actually expressing my feelings, all of my feelings and, you know, actually having a voice for the first time was incredibly helpful. And I did this in therapy in part, although I didn't, I wasn't really able to access therapy apart from four counseling sessions when I was at university. That's all we got back then. And, um, yeah, so I've had some general counselling that I paid for myself in my mid-twenties as I was coming out of the eating disorder. That was really, really helpful. You know, the first time in my life where I'd really expressed openly a lot of things that I'd kept inside. And I also did a lot of talking with a couple of really good friends. And I think friendship is, can be incredible with healing. Once we start to be open and share things and friends can reciprocate about their stuff, you know, we realize that actually everyone has stuff going on. We are all vulnerable. We all have our different struggles. I think what's really important is that you do it with the right friends. Um, you need to be speaking to someone who's a good listener, who's very accepting and encouraging and warm, and um, who perhaps isn't going to like dominate massively or tell you what to do. And hopefully where you can reciprocate. So it feels like a balance, you know, so sometimes maybe you're more the listener and sometimes they're more the listener of you. Now, in that period of my life, when I came to feel a lot of the emotions that I had kind of blocked off through eating disorder behaviours, it was a very difficult time. There was a lot of rage, upset, disappointment, and um, wasn't very easy. It wasn't an easy period. And I wish I could just say, oh, you can just jump to the place of forgiveness and compassion and love, and um, off you go into the sunset. You know, you kind of have to go through that difficult phase, but ultimately it is very, very, very freeing. And what helped as well through therapy was taking my parents off this pedestal in a way where I was expecting them to almost be superhuman and to realize, you know, they're kind of doing the best they can. They have their own strengths, their own weaknesses. You don't have to take on board everything they say. You don't have to please them all the time. You can have your own voice, you know, just developing that more kind of healthy adult role rather than being the child and kind of having them in this super powerful position. And, you know, I guess on the whole, parents are doing the best they can at the time. You know, this isn't always true. And for anyone listening that has had, you know, extreme trauma or adverse childhood experiences where that was not the case, then I think, you know, absolutely, um, you know, if that's your experience, then you need to really validate that and be true to that. Um, but, you know, but I think for many people, parents are doing the best they can at the time, but they're humans, they are flawed, they will get it wrong. Now, one thing I did as well is when I was in Australia, I went on a gap year. I just kind of worked in cafes and things, worked my way around. And I remember writing to my mum and dad separately, getting some things off my chest. And when I wrote these letters because again it was kind of a bit pre-email I think that was probably the early days of email I think I had thought at the time I'm going to write these letters and they are going to come back to me and they're going to apologize and they're going to express all their feelings we're going to have this great kind of you know reunion makeup everything's going to be wonderful that didn't really happen however (laughs) it was still a really valuable exercise because I was able to at least express my feelings. And even if everything wasn't heard or understood, I felt felt like I had a voice. 
And I also was kind of moving to that place of acceptance of realizing, okay, maybe I'm not gonna be able to have the relationship quite as I had sort of fantasized. I'm not gonna get the care and love and support that I'm wanting, particularly maybe more for my dad. I think I've always had that quite strongly for my mum. But kind of coming to terms with that and realizing his limitations, but starting to find some peace with that really. And realizing again, he's kind of doing the best he can at the time. But at the same time, I had to, whilst having compassion for him, it was also really important for me to acknowledge my own feelings and how I had felt um, upset and anxious and overwhelmed and guilty and shamed and to work through those feelings, be able to express them and um, you know, to do that in the safety of therapy. And I would really say to anyone again that's um, listening here, like I'm not saying to everyone you should write a letter to your parents. Sometimes that can be a very detrimental thing. It might not be useful. It could create, um, you know, a more difficult situation. But what you can do sometimes is write a letter that you don't send. So you literally write it for your own therapeutic use. And then maybe afterwards you burn it or you shred it or you get rid of it. But it's a way of you being able to validate all your feelings, to get all of those things off your chest and to give yourself permission to have your feelings, whatever they may be. And I say again, you know, if this all just feels too overwhelming and you don't want to open the box to the feelings, you might want to do this in the safety of therapy where you have that kind of safe container, where you are held sort of therapeutically, where you can feel safer because it might just feel too much to do that on your own and that is really okay. It's important to be that we kind of manage this, I think, in a way that is doable for us at the time. So as I've said, it's not about getting stuck in the past and ruminating or complaining about things that happened endlessly, but it is helpful to process these things if you want to fully heal. Because if you try and avoid these deeper feelings and to push them away, they don't really go away. Um, what's what it's like is like a kind of gaping wound that you're trying to avoid with distractions maybe and you're sticking a sticky plaster over the top and it doesn't really go away it's like the elephant in the room that's always there it's like your feelings are bubbling beneath the surface even though you're not perhaps actively thinking about what's going on day by day but when you process feelings and express them safely you start to clear them you're not weighed down by the old baggage anymore and it frees you up to move on. And this is truly, truly liberating, liberating. (laughs) And I think every time you share your story, you begin to dilute the pain and process what's happened. And this does take time. You know, unfortunately we can't often just tell our story once and then off we go into the sunset feeling liberated and so much better. Sometimes we need to do it again and again and again. And again, you might need to do this in therapy, particularly if some of your memories are very painful or if you're dissociated or cut off from some of your memories as well and you need support to access them. You might need some support as well in therapy with like healing your nervous system because if you've been through a lot of abuse and adverse childhood experiences, you will be conditioned to be in fight, flight and fleeing from danger. And it's much harder to access the self-soothing system and you need support and help to be able to manage doing that. But thankfully, a lot of sort of somatic practices and nervous system healing is sort of really becoming more and more commonplace today. So that would be something to definitely have a Google of if you are recognizing yourself here. So with my own journey, after a period of raging and grief over some aspects of my childhood, over time, I have truly come to a place of acceptance 
and also taking personal responsibility for my own journey and healing. Now, this took time. I can remember in my 20s where I was so blaming of everything externally. I was not taking responsibility at all. I felt that if certain things had happened, everything would be so much better. Very much the blame was outside of me. Um, And the tricky thing with that is, is it places you in such a powerless place to have control and agency over change. And actually, once you start to take responsibility, as painful as that can be, and as hard as that can be, it's actually very, very empowering. So working through this process, I have huge love and compassion for my parents, but I couldn't jump to that stage without going through that kind of icky part in the middle of feeling the rage and upset and distress and anxiety and guilt and shame. It was part of the process. And it's an ongoing journey today in my healing. And I wouldn't really talk so much about my past anymore. I feel I've done that to the death. I've moved on that and I've moved on from that. I've created a different future. But however, I still continue to struggle with some people pleasing, sometimes being assertive, some of those core pain issues. And I need to keep working on those things today because of, although it's now nothing to do with my parents in terms of how I have internalized the early parenting and then in terms of how I show up in the world I can be vulnerable to repeating those old patterns and not being in such a great place so I need to continually work on that and that is through journaling through listening to podcasts through doing spending time every day being reflectful and insightful to think about what's going on in my life and notice what's happening to me psychologically you know to spend a bit of time doing that and that can all feel like effort but the trouble is if we don't put that effort and that work in it doesn't just go away it will build up build up and then you can be really vulnerable to maybe relapsing into old eating disorder behaviors or struggling with your mental health in other ways because of you know, those feelings will come out in some shape or form, or if you're not kind of voicing in your, you know, your needs, you're not being authentic, um, you know, it's going to kind of creep out in other ways. And that is not so good for your mental well-being. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, which is a symptom related issue. And I've said here that I'm going to be talking much more about the deeper stuff. But I just want to mention the symptom related issue, which can be really helpful if you're going to be able to do the deeper work. Because if you're not managing your symptoms, if your brain is really starved, if your physiology is really unstable, if you're missing meals, if you're not doing regular eating, if you are over-exercising, if you can't concentrate, if you just can't hold attention on anything, you can't reflect on things, you're feeling cold all the time, you're preoccupied with food, it is almost impossible to do the psychological work and the emotional work because of One, it's really hard to have insight and to reflect. And um, two, if you do it, you probably are not going to have much emotional resilience to deal with all of that because of you are physically and mentally not in a good place. Now, for my journey, I stopped restriction and practiced regular eating and I allowed my weight to pretty much restore to a healthy place for me before I went off to university. So this gave me so much more physical and emotional resilience to handle the emotional aspects better. And of course, it wasn't a smooth and linear journey. When I went off to uni, I was just under my healthy weight and I was still quite preoccupied with body image. However, I was eating normally enough to function, to study, to socialise, to make friends and to have some sort of life. So 
those and those were all really then protective factors because if I hadn't been eating enough and I was so preoccupied with food, I would have been really isolated. I probably would have been missing lectures. I wouldn't have been socialising. I wouldn't have been able to make friends. And then that would have all really impacted my mental well-being. And then the eating disorder symptoms would have probably reared their head um, all too fully again. So when I went to uni, I was still experiencing the conflict about this decision. So obviously I went to uni, but I had gone against my dad. So I was living with his disapproval. And I found that really, really, really hard. You know, although I'd made the sort of liberating decision to go off to uni, I felt a lot of guilt for that. And I felt that I'd done the wrong thing. You know, I still felt very, very, very conflicted. But because I was more weight restored and I was in a healthier place physically and mentally, I was able to talk more openly to people around me and utilise more helpful coping strategies. And my ED behaviours were significantly reduced to how they'd been before. I was occasionally binging and purging, and perhaps particularly when alcohol was in the mix. However, I wasn't purging my emotions or needing the eating disorder in the way I had before, which was really, really helpful because of, I guess, if I had been dealing with that emotional conflict and I was still physically very unstable, I would have used the eating disorder behaviours as a way of gaining relief from those intense emotions. And it would have then exacerbated all the symptoms a lot more. And I then would have just been in such a dark place. So although I wasn't in the best place in terms of recovery, I was in a better place. And that gave me positive momentum towards, you know, learning to deal with healthier ways of coping. So that was a lot through just the unsexy work of recovery, of regular eating, keeping blood sugar stable, restoring to a healthy weight, starting to allow in forbidden, my old forbidden foods, placing less value on body image and starting to divert my interests out in other areas. So I'm now going to move on to talk a bit about body image. And of course, today, particularly treating people with eating disorders with social media and all the pressures that come with that idealised perfection that is thrown in our faces all the time, it is no surprise that people struggle with body image and comparison and all those things. Now, back in the day, I did grow up with Kate Moss, Victoria Beckham. I think they're both would have been in my school year if we were in the same place. So, you know, I very much grew up with them. But it was just through magazines. There was like limited access on television. It wasn't the same world we live in today. So I think I was quite protected by that. And also by having my farming upbringing, being a bit isolated. Again, that was a really protective factor for me, which was really, really beneficial. But I think... What helps with the whole body image side of things, I think more than anything, is trying to become a bit more body neutral and spending less time thinking about your body. I think the body positive movement is fantastic. I think it's amazing that we are celebrating our diversity of bodies. But I think being body positive for some people is just a step too far. It's not realistic. And also by being body positive as well, we are focusing a lot on our body as a means of judgment, deriving worth. Um, again, the body is a big focus. Whereas I think in reality, what really helps and what really helped me with eating sort of recovery was getting really um, excited and inspired about other areas of my life, like my career, my studies, my going traveling, my hobbies, friendships, relationships. All those things became 
areas where I really wanted to invest in. And actually, as I invested more in those, I got rewards back from those different areas and built positive momentum. And I just wasn't focusing so much on my body. Whereas I think when we are so focused on the body, whether it be through weighing, through body checking in the mirror, through social comparison, it is so hard to win. It is so hard to win. And the more we get on that journey, I think, the more preoccupied we become, the more obsessed we become with the detail. It is just so, so, so hard to win. So I'd say like a real goal with some of this is body neutrality, just starting to focus on other things. So just be so aware of anything that can trigger you day by day and start to be ruthless with cutting out those triggers because of it's all very well maybe doing a cull of your Instagram feed, but then if you are around somebody who is massively triggering for you on a daily basis, maybe you need to really think about your contact with that person and how you protect yourself and having some boundaries there. Um, I think this stuff is really, really important because of we have 60,000 thoughts plus a day. Many of those thoughts are repetitive. The things that we expose ourselves to in our environment have a huge impact on how we think, feel and behave. We do have some control over this. It is hard in our social media, diet culture, inundated world. But I just really encourage you, be absolutely ruthless. No one else is going to step in and protect your mental health in that way. You need to become um, an agent of, you know, empowered in your agency to take control of some of this. And I'm saying this, truly acknowledging how hard this is. But um, there's a lot that can be changed when you really step into this place. So body neutrality, I would say, is the way to go. Okay, so what else really helped me in my recovery as well? So when I was living in London, when I was 24, I was still bulimic. I was in doing a master's I found it very high pressured I had some real conflict about whether I was doing the right thing I was also in an unhealthy relationship which was causing me conflict and also involved with a religious organization which nothing against religion here but for me at that time in my life it was not the most helpful thing so I had quite a lot of chaos and instability when I lived in London what I did is I finished my master's, I came back to Cambridge and then was like living back on the farm for a brief period, which again, you can imagine had its pros and cons. However, what it did really give me was stability, routine. I got a temping job. I started a new relationship, which was much more healthy. I had structure, routine, stability in my everyday life. My mum was kind of cooking me nice meals you know, all those things were really, really, really helpful. And I think, I'm not saying that stability and routine can cure an eating disorder, but I think there's something about your environment and having some kind of, some kind of stability, some kind of routine, which can be really, really, really helpful. And having people around you who are supportive of you and having structure, having purpose, and maybe being removed from a situation that is high stress. And I'm not saying that we should be avoiding stress and being closeted in cotton wool, but at the same time, it's about kind of manageable stress, isn't it? And I think for me, when I look back then, there were some things in my life in London that weren't really that helpful. And I was dealing with them a lot on my own as well, which was not a very helpful way of coping. 
Another big area for me was shame reduction. I used to really feel that I was worthless, that there was something wrong with me, that I was flawed in some way, and I would be super, super critical of myself. I was adept at noticing all my perceived flaws. I'm not really talking so much about what I look like, I'm just talking about myself as a person and not very good at tuning into my strengths and qualities. And an example of this, which I probably mentioned on the podcast before, is being incredibly hard on myself that I was not good at maths, when on the whole, I was, I'm quite fortunate that I kind of thrived in the academic system in the UK. I enjoyed school, did reasonably well, was not a straight A student by any means, but I managed to get some exams so I could get on to the next stage. But I was always struggled a bit more with maths and I would focus incessantly on that. And I remember when I worked in a pub when I was about 20 and I would be berating myself the fact that I couldn't do mental arithmetic really quickly in my head and I completely ignored the fact that I was good with the customers, that I could build rapport, that I was kind of energetic and smiley and worked really hard. I just focused on this one perceived flaw that I felt I had and I guess a lot of my healing journey as well as just being coming to terms with who I am, my strengths and my weaknesses, you know, to be able to recognize the things I'm genuinely good at and to step into those things and to appreciate those things, but also to realize that I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be good at everything. And actually it's okay to be weak in certain areas because, you know, thank goodness it makes the world more interesting. And there's plenty of other people that are really good at maths and can step into those jobs or roles. And I don't need to be like really good at everything. So I think for me, like, I used to feel so much shame about who I was. And I guess a lot of that come from my early roots, but starting to sort of dismantle that and to offer myself much more acceptance and compassion. And I think, I remember having this kind of realization in my twenties of just noticing how much more forgiving other people could be of themselves, you know, just being able to laugh at themselves, being much kinder to themselves and just thinking, Harriet, you could do that too. You don't have to be going around with this super critical voice beating yourself up all the time because it is not serving you. And that was a bit of a breakthrough moment. And um, I'm not saying I've completely got that sussed and completely there with that, but I am so much better with it. And I'm telling you that once you start to be much more compassionate with yourself and accepting of yourself, you know, life is very different. Um, It's actually much more joyful and you feel much more content. So if you notice yourself there, um, I just really encourage you to, you know, just to work on beginning to accept yourself, to be able to kind of really notice quietly your strengths and qualities, notice the other things that your friends, you know, the things that your friends would say about you and appreciate you and start to let that good stuff in. And if you are being really hard on yourself in one area, you know, notice maybe where's that coming from? Is that from kind of early voices? actually, do you have to hold on to those projections, those thoughts anymore? Can you start to be a bit kinder to yourself and let them go? Okay. And the last area I want to talk about in my healing journey is finding my voice and stopping people pleasing. So this was definitely what I would call the thorn in my side in my just mental health recovery. And it's still something that I'm not completely there with to this day. You know, I haven't engaged in eating disorder behaviors now for years, probably 20 plus years. But I still struggle sometimes with people pleasing and being able to assert myself, find my voice, 
um, you know, almost give myself permission to speak up and um, not have to kind of default to the old toxic people pleasing way of coping. Now, one thing that really helped me with this is I used to think that people pleasing was effective. I was addicted to the short term buzz that you get by kind of gratifying other people's needs. And, you know, I enjoyed people pleasing to some extent, but that was always very short term because afterwards I would often feel resentful, hard done by. And I also felt very isolated and alone because of people were only seeing the pleasing side of me. They were not really seeing the whole side of me. So then you start to feel a bit like a fake. You feel that people's acceptance of you is conditional and then you have to do more people pleasing and it is a horrible cycle. But one thing I've really found on my healing journey with this is that actually people generally do value authenticity and being real. And actually I know myself when I come into contact with someone who today is struggling with people pleasing, it's very confusing being on the receiving end of that because of you almost kind of get a sense that what they're saying isn't quite authentic, but it's really hard to put your finger on it. And it's really hard to please, it's really hard to be able to kind of meet someone else's needs when they aren't clearly expressing them themselves. You know, it's a very confusing place to be. So yeah, that's helped me a lot in being able to start to let go of that. I still feel guilty sometimes when I don't please, but I recognize that is kind of trauma, trauma guilt. It's not really effective guilt, which I should be carrying day by day. So when the guilt feeling comes, I'm able to kind of recognize that and appreciate that's not really relevant. That's just something from my past that is a very vulnerable spot for me and it will keep coming up probably, but I don't have to associate with it in the same way. So I recognize it that guilty response is often a sort of childhood traumatic response. I can respond now as an adult and I can let that guilt go or not engage with it in the same way. What I do as well to find my voice and stop people pleasing as well as I journal daily. I have to write things down. I have to reflect on them. I find sometimes if I'm too much in my head, I don't really know what I think. I overthink it and then I tie myself up in knots when I actually put pen to paper and actually get things down, I start to get much more clarity. I would say with this as well, particularly if you're an emotional person, as I would describe myself as an emotional person, you want to see what you tend to write consistently in your journal. If you're having an emotional day where everything feels a bit out of proportion and overwhelming, but you're finding those thoughts and feelings are just coming up on that day and it's not a true reflection of how you feel in the bigger picture of life, then you can see perhaps you don't need to be, perhaps those aren't consistently the thoughts and feelings that you're having. But when you start to journal and you see a regular pattern of things coming up, when you start to kind of access your own voice, your own thoughts, you can start to have more self-trust and you can start to realize what is important to you, what you do think, what you do feel about things. And this is like an emotional muscle that needs to be worked and worked and worked again. And it's hard to do if you haven't been if you weren't raised in an environment where you were encouraged to reflect and talk openly and to express your feelings, sometimes you just won't know. You'll feel like rabbit in the headlights. You might dissociate if someone asks you how you're feeling. So it's a drip, drip process that you have to just do one bit at a time. But journaling can really massively help with that. And again, you might want to go to therapy if it feels like it's just too much to open this box. You might want to do it in the safety of therapy where you have the support to do that. 
And another way to do all this that's helped me with people pleasing and finding my voice is just to speak assertively, to tell people how I feel where I have that trust and support and care and acceptance, you know, where people that will listen, that will ask open questions, that will be encouraging, that are not encouraging the people pleasing, that want you to be the most authentic version of you. And those are the people that you want around. People that start to reject you when you're not people pleasing, they aren't really the people that you want in your life. So um, yeah, that's just a thought to take away with. Okay, well, I hope you found some of this helpful. Obviously, this is my experience. So there'll be some things in here that might be very relevant for you. There'll be some things in here that are not so relevant for you. So what you need to do is take the parts that are helpful. Don't take the parts that are not so helpful. Integrate the parts that are helpful into your own journey. But ultimately, this is about you reflecting on your journey, thinking about your own early experiences, things that have impacted you, starting to really reflect and be tuned into your story so you can make sense of things. And again, it's not about stewing in your juices and going round and round in circles, but it's about beginning to understand yourself much better, to have more compassion for yourself. And then once you are more tuned into your story, you're expressing your feelings, you can start to work through those in a safe way, whether that be through journaling, whether it be through going to therapy, whether it be through talking to a good friend, um, or whatever ever other ways that you find are helpful for you. Okay, well, that's all from me today. And um, I will catch up with you guys again soon. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And thank you so much for listening. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.